The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. This next section of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, is a, a fairly significant chunk that is going to uh, take us a couple of weeks to move through. It is a significant chunk, and it is a remarkably powerful chunk. But we need to take it in successive weeks without a break. And looking at the calendar, uh, the United States Navy has determined that during our time of worship next week, I should be doing sit-ups and push-ups and running around for some reason without anybody chasing me. So uh, that means that I won't be able to be here during worship next Sunday morning. Roger Beardmore will be bringing God's Word. Always a joy uh, when Roger opens up God's Word and teaches. Uh, That being said, I don't want to begin this next section until the following week when we've got a few weeks together that we can just move through it uh, sort of in sequence. So what I want to do this morning is I want to sort of Uh, pull out of a theme from verse 4 of chapter 2 that we just sort of waded into the water in very, very gently last week. But I did get several questions uh, after the sermon last week that indicated to me that it might be wise to uh, spend a little more time on this particular issue uh, that is raised at the end of of, uh, verse 4. And so this morning we'll do that. We'll uh, sort of pull out of, of... our sequential move through the book and look at this issue that the author of Hebrews brings up in verse 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 just in context and then we'll pull out and, and take off from there. The writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just, just retribution... How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. In that last section, he celebrates... The authenticity of our great salvation, the message of the gospel that has come to us. And he makes these remarkable statements of, of how, we can, uh, how we can know that the gospel is something that we should anchor our souls to. How we can know that it is the true message from him. It's sort of in a, a world with other messages that come from other people that say other things. And he told us that in that little section that we looked at last week, verses uh, 3 Uh, through four, that the gospel is secure and we know that it's true because the Lord himself declared it. Not only did the Lord declare it, but those who heard it spread the gospel, the apostles and others. And that gospel went out in power. We track that through the book of Acts. And then he says at the end of this, not only did the Lord himself, Jesus, declare this message of the gospel, not only did those who heard him go out and spread it and it went out with power, but God the Father himself validated the message. And how did he do that? He validated the message of the gospel by signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's to that issue that I want to speak this morning. Because in these days, it seems to me that there is a real fascination with the miraculous and with the experiential. Uh, People are fascinated by miracles. People are fascinated by things that happen out of the ordinary, out of the usual. Uh, I think people just get a little bored with everyday life and sort of the doldrums of what goes on on an ordinary day, on an ordinary week, in an ordinary year. And they long for something extraordinary. They long for something fantastic, something unusual, something that breaks into the ordinary that is unusual and unexplainable. We see this sort of longing when we look at the kinds of things that entertain us, the kinds of movies that are popular that we all pay money to go see. Uh, I don't know what kind of movies you go see, if you see any at all, but in, in my little world, we, we like the superhero movies. And uh, those are all about things that don't normally happen, right? 
I go and I, and I, and I watch as Spider-Man does like miraculous things. You know, he shoots webs and he swings around and he has power and he's like indestructible. I, we watch uh, movies where uh, uh, the Avengers fly around, you know, and they do all sorts of crazy things. Things that are not normal, things that are not ordinary, things that you just don't see every day. We like to, to fantasize about the miraculous. I think also, in many ways, people, in their, in, particularly in their faith, they long for something experiential. And many seasons of life, our, our walk with the Lord can become sort of routine. It can become sort of ordinary. It's not a mountaintop every single day of life. It can't be, right? Particularly when we think in terms of how God sanctifies us, that He often does that through seasons of pain and through seasons of trial and through seasons of turmoil. Life isn't always on a mountaintop, and we long to experience things in ways that are unusual and extraordinary. Within the body of Christ, many have sort of become bored with the normative sort of means of grace. The scriptures, prayer, corporate worship, preaching, fellowship with the local body. You know, the normal ways that God intersects our lives and the normal normative ways in which God speaks to us and encourages us and challenges us and sanctifies us and builds us up. Often people become bored with such things and they look for something more. They look for something amazing and something miraculous. It's evident by the fact that anytime some uh, some person shows up on the scene claiming to do miracles, claiming to do the miraculous, claiming to miraculously heal, claiming to miraculously do things that others aren't doing, uh, people will flock to such people. The promise of the miraculous will draw a crowd And that's been true all throughout the history of the church. You couple that with many, perhaps large swaths of the body of Christ in our nation today are filled with people who are biblically really very illiterate and quite gullible. And they don't understand how to process things that they that they see. And so they say things in the light of such miraculous things going on around us or apparently miraculous things. Well, who are we to criticize? Who are we to judge? I mean, it happened. It must be true. It must be right. And in our day, just like in Jesus' day in the first century, in the day in which the author of Hebrews writes, um, where the message of the gospel goes out, there are false preachers and false teachers who, who share a false message. And as long as the Lord has done miraculous things, there's always been a, a sort of a, a shifty enemy out there who, who disguises himself as an angel of light and also does things out of the ordinary, attracting people to himself. That's been always true. It's true today. The, uh, just, a, just within the last decade, there was an event down in Florida it's uh, often referred to as the Lakeland Revival. I don't know if you've heard of that before. It's been a few years now. But it was called a revival. It was no revival. It was, it was something altogether different. But it, it was led and initiated by uh, uh, a person who claimed to do the miraculous. A pastor, a preacher, who opened a Bible and occasionally read words from it. But his real stick was the miraculous. was the claim to be able to heal, the claim to be able to, to do things miraculously to some degree at will. Uh, this event took place uh, some, somewhere around the beginning of the summer and went right on through into the fall. Uh, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people flocked down to Lakeland, Florida to these services that went on day after day after day, eventually being uh, sort of broadcast on the Internet. Uh, day after day after day. I mean, the reach of, it, of the event was is really marvelous. I mean, thousands upon thousands of people showed up in person from all over the place, and millions of people tuned in uh, via technology. But if you ever got a glimpse of what was really going on there, the central feature of it all was Pastor Todd Bentley and his miracles. I think we have a video clip that will give you a little sense for um, kind of 
Todd Bentley and what he was doing and what the theme was going on during that particular event. So listen to a little bit of, of Todd Bentley. Okay, that's good. Yeah. It does explain for me why no one sits on the front row. We make, we make joke about that, but there's nothing funny about that that you just saw. I mean, it really isn't funny. Uh, I'm not going to show the other clip, guys. Um, there was another clip that I had that showed his wife uh, speaking about uh, a vision that she had received from the Lord. And uh, it's, it's the, one of the most bizarre things I've ever heard. In the, mix of it, in the midst of her telling about it, her head starts shaking violently back and forth like this in a really disturbing sort of a fashion. I don't show you those things and bring them up because I take some pleasure in taking shots at somebody else. I point it out to you Because that thing drew millions of people's attention. And the thing that drew everybody's attention were the miracles. Kick an old lady in the face because God told me and she's going to be healed. Jump on a guy and choke him. Scream for the devil to come out. And I ask myself, why? Why do people flock to something like that? Why thousands upon thousands of people flock to something like that? It's because we're drawn to the miraculous. People desperately want something like that to be true. I ask you in that little clip that you saw, to whom or what do all of the miracles that were claimed point? I'll answer it for you. They point to Todd Bentley. They do not point to God. Every miracle that ever took place in the, in the Bible always took place in a way that drew glory to the Lord and drew attention to the message of the gospel. We'll talk about that in a moment. 
And so we exist in a world where people still claim signs and they still claim wonders and they still claim the ability to do miracles. What are we to make of stuff like that? When people like that will point to verses in the Bible and they'll say, look, God obviously did miracles. He did them in the Old Testament. He did them in the New Testament. Of course, he's doing them through me today. Who are you to say anything otherwise? Well, I pointed out last week in verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 2, God bore witness by signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. All of this in that section about the validation of the gospel is in the past tense. So it seems like at least uh, we can uh, sort of uh, draw from this passage. The author of Hebrews seemed to think that those things had happened in the past but he didn't seem to indicate they were continuing to go on in his day. We'll talk more about that. But I want you to sort of set this up by saying this. We need to understand, in order to process right, how to think about signs, wonders, miracles. We need to understand the transitional nature of the first century. The first century was a very unique moment in the history of the church. For centuries prior to that, we were dealing with an Old Testament era where, the, where God was primarily dealing with whom? Okay, the Jews, the nation of Israel. That's what we have in the Old Testament. God establishing, creating man, establishing the nation of Israel, and him working his work and his message through the, wor- through the nation of Israel out to the world. We see over and over uh, Israel's ultimate rejection of his message and their ultimate selfishness and refusal to take his message to the world. And so we get to the end, and, and things change. God stops speaking for a season. And then he speaks ultimately and finally, like we saw in Hebrews chapter 1, by sending his one and only Son, the Lord Jesus, God to come near to us, to, to wrap himself in flesh, and to walk among men. And in the first century, that's what we have. We have a transition from the old covenant to the new We have a transition from prophets who declare direct revelation from God to preachers who declare the word of God. We have a church that is a New Testament church that is just being birthed in a sea full of counterfeits. We have no written New Testament yet. We have a a world around that is hostile to the gospel message, both Jewish and Gentiles alike all hostile to the Christian church and to the gospel message. It was a hotbed of conflict. And in the midst of all of that was a sea of of false prophets and alternative gospels. And God had to do something unique during this season with the churches being established and Christ is walking on the earth and shortly thereafter, we would expect some unique things to be happening during this moment and this season. And one of those unique things that happens is what the writer of Hebrews tells us, that God is bearing witness to the gospel through signs and through wonders and through miracles and through particular gifts of the Holy Spirit. When we think of signs, wonders, and gifts of the Holy Spirit, by the way, when you hear gifts of the Holy Spirit, you may think of a couple passages in the New Testament that speak to the issue that the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts to his people, to God's people. There are about three passages that really talk about uh, spiritual gifts, if you will, or gifts of the Holy Spirit. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 1 Peter 4. Ephesians 4 talks about offices that maybe correlate with some of these gifts. But what we see are gifts or giftings, if you will. I prefer the term giftings because a gift seems like something you just take home and play with or something. A gifting is an ability that is given. And we see like in Romans 12, things listed like encouragement, giving, leadership, mercy, prophecy, which we could equate to preaching or teaching, uh, service and teaching. And then in 1 Corinthians, we have some similar uh, things listed there. Uh, But we also have some miraculous sort of gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12, healing, um, miracles, and uh, languages or tongues listed there. Uh, Ephesians 4, we don't see any of the miraculous stuff. Romans 12, we don't see anything particularly miraculous. In 1 Peter 4, those offices of serving and teaching, nothing miraculous. Only in 1 Corinthians 12 do we see sort of miraculous giftings. And so 
when, when I hear the author of Hebrews say, God bearing witness by signs, wonders, various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, I understand him to be speaking of these miraculous gifts listed or giftings listed in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Miracles, healing, the ability to do miraculous things via language. Like at Pentecost, where one language is spoken and another language is understood or heard and discerned on the other end. What we need to understand about these things, prophecy, uh, not prophecy, when we, when we think of things like healing and miracles and these language giftings, when we track them through the Bible, and we're going to do that in just a moment, we find that these are personal giftings, like the other gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're personal giftings that God gives to people to be able to act upon, at least to some degree, at will. It's an ability, a particular ability to do a particular thing. Some of these spiritual gifts you'll see are just normal things that all believers are encouraged to do in general. To be encouragers, to give, to be merciful, um, to serve, to teach, so forth. But God particularly gifts, by this Holy Spirit, some people to excel at some of those things. To particularly be energized by some of those things. Although we're all called to do them, some people are particularly gifted at them. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. The same would be true of these miraculous giftings. They were gifts that were given to people to be able to do. Where do we see them, these personal giftings and abilities? Well, we see them initially in the ministry of Jesus, right? I mean, it's, it's, it, you don't have to think very hard if I were to ask you right now, tell me some miraculous things Jesus did. What would you say? Raise the dead. Walked on water. Fed 5,000 people with just a few fish and a little bit of bread. I heard somebody say, calm the seas that were in the midst of the storm. He speaks and the, the storm instantly stops. He turns water into wine. Healing was a regular part of Jesus' ministry, wasn't it? I mean, he went around and he healed a lot. He healed a lot of people. Who did he heal? Well, he healed men, he healed women, he healed children. He healed Jewish people, he healed Gentiles. He healed people sometimes who clearly exhibited faith, and he healed other people who exhibited absolutely no faith whatsoever. In some cases, he walked into a situation where there are a bunch of people with needs, and he chooses to heal one person, and in other events, he heals everybody who is there. In Matthew's Gospel alone, he heals a leper, he heals a centurion's servant, he heals Peter's mother-in-law, he heals a demon-possessed person, he heals a, a paralytic, a bleeding woman, a dead girl, two blind men, a mute man, a man with a withered hand, an epileptic boy, and some other blind folks. That's a lot of healing. Jesus clearly had an ability to heal. But again, sometimes he only healed individuals. You remember John chapter 5, by the pool of Bethesda, there was gathered a bunch of people because they had believed this, this thought that if they, when the pool was stirred, they believed that this pool was stirred by an angel and the first one that could get in the water would be healed. So there was all these desperate people gathered around this pool, desperately waiting for the water to stir so they could be the first one to get in. And by the pool is a paralytic who's in bad shape because if anybody doesn't have much of a shot of being the first one in the water, it's a paralyzed guy. It's not like he can hop up and run. And Jesus walks into this scene with his pool and all of these desperate people. He goes to that one man and he tells him to stand up and walk and go. And he heals him. And he walks out of the scene and all the other desperate people are left in their infirmities. He doesn't heal them. Just the one. And again, other times he, he healed multitudes of people. How did he do it? Well, sometimes he did it by touch. He touched them and they were healed. Sometimes he simply spoke, and they were healed by spoken word. But what you find is in Jesus' healing ministry, he healed uh, verifiable, observable diseases, often congenital diseases, diseases people were born with. I think of a man who was born blind, who was a beggar. Do you remember that? Jesus opened his eyes. He healed withered hands, leprosy. He reattached an ear. He raised a dead girl. He healed a visible fever, congenital blindness, deafness, muteness. All of these things Jesus healed. And there was no doubt what he had done, right? I mean, the guy was blind and now he can see. The guy was crippled. He stands up and walks away. 
The ear was off and now the ear is on. He could heal anytime, anywhere. The music didn't have to be just right. The people didn't have to be pre-screened like they are today in events like those. And when Jesus healed, the results were always the same. He healed immediately. He healed completely. And he healed permanently. When he said, be healed, they were healed. There was no waiting period. It wasn't like they just gradually got better. It wasn't like the, the paralytic said, well, let me, I, I can crawl. A couple days later, he's stumbling around. And a month or two later, he's exercising with his physical therapist, and now he's got his legs back. It was stand up and walk, and he goes. He didn't just modify their symptoms for a while, he healed them. Now, all the people that Jesus healed eventually died of something else, right? That's true. Something for which they were not healed. Lazarus. You remember Lazarus? Died twice. Died, buried. Jesus said, Lazarus, get out of the grave. He came back to life. And again, some point in Lazarus' life, he died. I suspect because he isn't walking around. That time Jesus didn't call him out of the grave. But it wasn't just Jesus. He gave that ability to his apostles. He gave them the ability to do in like fashion to what he did. And by the way, Jesus, I mentioned this last week, so I don't want to belabor the point. His miracles always pointed to the message that he was preaching. I am the light of the world, right? I'm the light of the world. So he opens blind eyes, gives a man whose eyes were dark light. I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, though you die, you shall live. And whoever believes in me will live and never die. That's what he says right before he says, Lazarus, come out of the grave. The message was always the thing. It wasn't the miracle. The miracle always pointed to the message. And there were times when people asked Jesus for miracles, and he knew that all they were doing was looking for sort of the show, and he would refuse to do them. He never did miracles as a spectacle. And in likewise fashion, he passed on that ability to his apostles. Mark chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 7 He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And so they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons. And anointed with oil many who were sick and they healed them. They went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. They're preaching a message of the gospel. A message of repentance and belief in the Lord Jesus. And as they're doing that. The Lord gave them the ability to do miraculous things like cast out demons and to heal people. The preaching was central. The miracles served to validate the preaching. In Luke chapter 10, we find that the Lord commissions another group of preachers associated with the apostles. Another 72, verse 1 and then verse 9. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And skipping down to verse 9, and he tells them, Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. Preach the message. I'm going to give you the ability to do some miracles to be able to validate that your message is from me. What's interesting about the Luke 10 passage is when you get down to the end of it, after they go do that and they come back and report to Jesus what happens, listen to what he says to them in verse 17 through 20 of Luke chapter 10. He says this to them. He says, The 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's remarkable what Jesus did. You can see him coming back. I mean, all this miraculous stuff has happened at at their hands. On this mission trip, if you will, right? They've been preaching and doing miracles. And they come back and they can't believe what they've been able to do. And they're jacked up about it. And they're, Lord, you won't believe what we did. And what's Jesus' main message to them? Yeah, I gave you the ability to do that. And don't fixate on that stuff. If you want to fixate on something, if you want to be obsessed about something, be obsessed about the fact that your name is written in heaven. If you want to focus on something, forget the miracles. Focus on the fact that you're saved. 
That's a greater miracle. We move along in the New Testament, we find the Apostle Paul, his ministry also was marked by miracles, wasn't it? Can you think of some miracles that the Apostle Paul was able to perform? Several things. I remember one of my favorite miracles of the Apostle Paul. He was preaching, and his sermon went so long, way longer than mine. And it was so long that, and they were on the second floor, a guy falls out, falls asleep, and fell out the window. Do you remember this story? Look it up. Guy sitting in the window, sermon goes too long, he falls asleep, kind of like some of you are on the verge right now. And I'm just not pointing anybody out, I'm just saying. And thankfully for you, we don't have seats in the windows. But this guy, Eutychus, falls out the window, crashes, dies. And Paul, the preacher, is horrified that he's put someone to sleep and killed them. And he heals him. He wakes him up. Eutychus, wake up. Comes back to life. Paul healed people. He cast a demon out of a woman. He was miraculously cured of a venomous snake bite. Acts chapter 19, verse 11 and 12. And and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. I mean, it's just a remarkable, miraculous work of the Lord that's attending Paul's ministry. God's doing miraculous things as he preaches. That Acts chapter 19 passage is really a remarkable passage. You might just mark that in your Bible and go back and look at it later. Um, I'm tempted now, but the time is late and I can't, to to, to walk you through what goes on in in Acts chapter 19. But it's in Ephesus, sort of an area that was steeped in the mystical things and the occult, if you will. And so many of the people in Ephesus, their lives were just entrenched in the mystical, the occult, the false miraculous, the satanic. And Paul goes in there and he's preaching the gospel in the mix of all of that. And God is redeeming people out of all that darkness into his glorious light. And God is bringing the message of the gospel as Paul is preaching it. He's attending it, validating it with miraculous things to validate that Paul is preaching the truth in the midst of all of this satanic activity that's going on. And and you find that in there, there are some folks who who are really impressed with Paul's ability to to, to perform miracles. And and, uh, they want to go out and they want to have that power too. The seven sons of Sceva, they're called. And so they go around uh, to demon-possessed people and start trying to cast them out in Paul's name. That's a really funny story, unless you're them. Um, When you read it, it's funny because the demon says, I know who Paul is, I know who Jesus is, but I don't know who you are. And the guy overpowers them all and... Beats the living daylights out of them, and they run away scared and naked. Um, it, it just stands as a, a humorous warning not to pursue things that don't belong to you. But what's remarkable about Acts chapter 19 is this. In the end of it, in verse 18, all of those people who were redeemed out of that darkness, listen to what happens to them when they come to true faith in Christ. Many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and did what? They burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase. The people who came out of that satanic, miraculous stuff, when they came to Christ through the gospel, they burned it and wanted no part of anything like it ever again. That was the evidence that God had redeemed them through the gospel. So what was the purpose of these things? What was the purpose of the the miracles in Jesus' ministry? What was the purpose of the apostles' ministry of miracles? What was the, the purpose of these things in Paul and in the ministry of the 72 others? The purpose is exactly what the author of Hebrews tells us that the purpose was. It was God's way of bearing witness or validating the gospel message. That's what they were. God bearing witness by signs and wonders to the gospel. This was how the Father in heaven validated the true gospel and the true gospel preacher. It's clear that that was their purpose. They were never an end themselves. They were never meant to be a spectacle in and of themselves. And they were never meant to be something that went on forever. 
They served a particular purpose during a particular season of the life of the history of the church to do a particular thing. Even the, the miraculous gift of languages we find in 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians speaks to this issue a bit. But we find in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 21 and 20 through 22, this, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners I'll speak to people, and even uh, then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues, or languages, are a sign not for believers, but for whom? But for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. So this miraculous gift of languages where people speak in one language and hear in another language, even that was particularly serving a purpose. It was a sign. And it wasn't just a general sign. It was a sign for a particular group. What group? Unbelievers, for lost people. It never had any purpose among believers and still doesn't. In fact, in that First Corinthians passage, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 28. The context of Isaiah 28 is a passage of God's judgment on Israel. God's message to Israel is this. I've been speaking to you in your language forever, and you continually plug your ears and refuse to listen to me. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stop talking to you in your language, and I'm going to start talking to other people in a different language, foreigners, who will listen. And I'm going to speak to them through different tongues and different languages. That whole thing came about because God was judging Israel and turning his attention to people who will listen. Gentiles. People like you. People like me. And that's what that always was about. And you compare that to what goes on today in places like Lakeland and other places where Christian people get together with each other and do this ecstatic language stuff in the context of the body of Christ, back and forth among Christians. For what purpose? That's not even loosely related to what was happening in the New Testament. So where did these things come from? Well, in every case, the source of the miracles was God. It was never the people. It was always God. The gospel went out, and God bore witness to it by signs, wonders, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. It was God who had the power. It was God who delegated the power and the authority to the people who did the things. Rightly executed, it never called attention to the people. It always called attention to Him. So what about these things? What about their duration? Once the church was established, once the apostles were validated, once the gospel was spreading and the written word of God came into view, the whole purpose of all of these miraculous gifts ceased. There was no reason for them anymore. There was no longer any need. When the word was written, God's final and sure revelation, when that was written down and and put in print, and the canon established and closed, that became God's final word to His people, His final revelation to His people. And it was clear, and it was obvious, and if anybody wanted to know the truth, it was there that they would go to find it. And the Word of God becomes central, and all of the miraculous things fall into the background because they're no longer necessary. If you want to know if the preacher's preaching the the gospel message, then listen to what he says, compare it to the written word, and you've got your answer. You want to know if the guy on the stage is doing things that are in accordance with what God has declared? Then compare what they're doing with what God's Word has said and you'll know your answer. You don't need any other validation. If you do a quick study of the book of Acts, you'll find as you trek left to right historically in the book of Acts, you'll find that as you move over time in the book of Acts, the miraculous things begin to fade quickly into the background of the narrative. Even before the book of Acts ends, these things are way in the background. Way in the background. When you look to the New Testament letters, the epistles, we have essentially little to no mention of these miraculous things going on by way of any kinds of gifts. In the letters to the churches from Paul or from James or from John, apart from 1 Corinthians. Historically, even within the first century, these things seem to have sort of just filtered out and ended. Even by the end of Paul's ministry, Paul, who did many miracles, by the end of his ministry, you're hearing things like this. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, he speaks of Epaphroditus. 
I, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he's been longing for you, uh, for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, not only to him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Epaphroditus got sick. He got really sick. But there's no indication that Paul is saying, hey, Epaphroditus is sick. Go find the guy with the gift of healing and send him over there to get that dude back up on his feet. I got work for him to do. No. He just says God had mercy on him. In First Timothy chapter 5, verse 3. Timothy's got physical ailments going on. And Paul writes to Timothy and he says, No longer drink only water. Use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for your frequent ailments. He doesn't say, Go down to the local church and find a local lady with the gift of healing so that you can have your ailments that are frequent healed. He says, Drink a little wine. It'll help. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20, Trophimus, another one of Paul's associates, Erastus, remained at Corinth, Paul writes, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Paul was there with Trophimus. Paul had the gift of healing at different places of his ministry. Does he exercise the gift on Trophimus? No, what does he do? He leaves him there ill, and he goes about his work. Oh, what do you make of all that? Well, it seems... That even late in Paul's ministry, these things are not prominent on the forefront of the ministry. God is not using them. The the, the usefulness for these things as a sign to unbelievers has faded. If you look at the New Testament and you look on a timeline, the last recorded miracle in the New Testament occurred around A.D. 58. Around AD 58, last recorded miracle in the New Testament. The last book of the New Testament was written around AD 96. So roughly there's a 40-year window of time between the last recorded miracle and the closing of the canon, the writing of the last book, where we have essentially no record of any miracles happening at the hands of anybody who's ministering for the Lord. And for the next several centuries of the history of the church, these things are nowhere to be found. Nobody's claiming them. They just disappear. The only place they come up is in some outlying groups that are cultic. It's not unlike God to do things like this. If you remember in the Old Testament... When the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness, do you remember they had a particular need? And one of the particular needs that they complained about often was they didn't like the food or they didn't feel like they had enough food. And so how does God resolve the problem of the Israelites wandering through the desert and their need for food? He does something miraculous. What does he do? Yeah, he rains down from heaven miraculously every morning a new food for them that was apparently pretty scrumptious, right? Manna. They liked it. It was good. It didn't even taste like kale or anything, you know, the stuff that we have to eat. It tasted good. They liked it. But he only gave them enough for that day. They'd go gather it up. They'd have enough for that day. They couldn't store it up for the next day. And the next morning, God would make more, and there it would be. And, and that, that went on. God miraculously, by miracle, provided for a direct need that they had. Right? It's pretty awesome what God did. You get to Joshua chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land. See, they entered the promised land. They ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes, parched grain. And get this. And the manna ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Why did, why did God stop the miracle? Because its purpose ended. They didn't need it anymore. God had provided something better in the land of Canaan and and an endless supply of wonderful food for them to eat. God gave them the miracle and the miracle served a particular purpose for a particular season and it ended when that purpose was no longer necessary because God had superseded it by something better. 
I would argue that the miraculous things that attended the first century uh, uh, ministry of Jesus and the apostles and those closely associated with the apostles were just like the manna. They were a a particular manifestation of the miraculous work of God that served a particular purpose to validate the gospel for a particular season. And when the scriptures were closed, the final revelation of God was written. There was no longer any purpose for that to be taking place. And so it ended. It ended. Well, what about today? Does God still do miracles? Somebody asked me a question about this this week. Does God still do miracles? Do you believe God still does miracles? Well, what kind of question is that? Of course God still does miracles. I mean, He's God. He can do anything He wants, anytime He wants, anywhere He wants, any way He wants. If He wants to turn me upside down and paint my hair purple and stick me in a tree, He could do that right now. He can do whatever he wants, and he does do whatever he wants. He is sovereign ruler of the universe who has all power. He can do anything he wants, anytime he wants, and he does. He does. Does he still heal people? Of course he does. He heals people through all sorts of means. He heals people naturally. Isn't it amazing? Go look at yourself in the mirror later today. You might be, you know, not impressed with yourself at the moment. You need to go to the gym or something. But, hey, you've got a pretty awesome body. God made it, and he made it to heal itself. I mean, you go get yourself banged up trying to do a, a do-it-yourself project at home that you're not prepared for. And guess what happens? You heal up. God heals you. Is that a miracle? I think it's pretty, pretty miraculous. He heals by medicine. He's given us gifts, common grace, medicines and doctors and surgeons who can do things for us. When you get sick, you can, you can uh, go to the new practice uh, right here, just a plug for, uh, you know, my friend here, Sasha. Um, uh, and, and, and she'll take care of you. She's trained in medicine. And God will use her and her skills and the tools at her disposal to bring healing to your body. It's a great thing. God heals. And sometimes God heals miraculously. Sometimes, unexplainably, with no explanation, for no particular reason, God just says, cancer, gone. And it's gone. It just happens. He does it sovereignly. He does it when he wants to, however he wants to. And he's not obligated to give an explanation for why or when. He just does it. But he does not give people the personal gift of healing like he did the apostles and the 72 and the ministry of Jesus. He heals sovereignly however he wants to, whenever he wants to. But a personal gifting is no longer manifest. Does he still do miracles, even language miracles? Of course. Of course. God can do whatever miracle he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. He knows how to speak the language of a culture. And it would not be beyond God, certainly, in, in the mix of, a, of, of some particular culture where uh, illiteracy is high and there's no written word for them to read. It would be just like God in the mix of that kind of a culture when the missionaries go in to do some sort of miraculous th- thing via language or via miracle or via healing, just like he did in the first century, to validate the message in the absence of the word. Of course God can do that, particularly in cultures that are steeped in mysticism and cultures that are steeped in animism and cultures that are steeped in the satanic and the occult. You don't have to read very far or very broad of missionaries who are going into those kinds of areas. Some who reside even here in our church to hear stories of how God has done very similar things in such places. God can do that. I believe God does that. But nobody has the gift of being able to do that at will, like the apostles did, like Jesus did. He just doesn't give personal gifts to do those things. The season and the purpose is over. Well, our time is up, way up, and there's much more that could be said about this. But what is a good way to respond to all this? A good way for us to respond to it is simply to to say this. The ministry that God has called us to in our context and the ministry field where he's placed us is to go into all the world and to take the gospel message and deliver it to human beings. To take the written word, the gospel, and deliver it to human beings who are lost. And you know the way that he'll validate the message when you do that? 
It won't be because He gives you the ability to do a miracle or to heal somebody. It'll be because He transforms their soul. He does the the biggest miracle that's ever happened. He transforms the human soul. He takes a a, a sinful, selfish person. He kills that sinful, selfish nature. And He brings them to life. And he, he, He makes them born again into the image of His Son, Jesus. He takes people who love themselves and love their sin and causes them to love Jesus and to hate their sin. He takes people who are destined for eternal hell and He transforms them into people who are a part of His own family. That's all the validation that we need. You take the gospel and God will validate the message. He'll validate it because He'll transform the hearts of those who hear it and believe. And they'll be saved. Those who previously were under satanic control will come under the power of the Holy Spirit of God and be made whole. That's what will happen. We don't need to look for miracles. We don't need to look for some sort of gift of healing. And frankly, when people run around claiming to have these things, you need to avoid them. You need to not listen to them. You need to understand that at very best, they're misguided. At worst, they're intentionally deceptive. Our focus is the gospel. Go into all the world Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you. That's our mandate. And God validates it by saving the soul. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the way that you redeemed us. For the fact that you motivated some person somewhere, in some place, some teacher, some preacher, some friend, some neighbor, some missionary, somebody somewhere, to cross our paths. And to open their mouths and to tell us about your son Jesus who died in our place. And by the power of your spirit, you opened our eyes to to believe that message. You helped us to see Jesus for who he is. You drew us to him in confession and repentance. And we turned from our sin and we embraced Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And you changed us. You caused us to be born again into a living hope, like Peter says. You forgave our sin. You redeemed our soul. You gave gave us eternal life. We needed no miracle. We needed no healing. We needed no language thing going on. All we needed was the gospel. And somebody that carried it. And we thank you for those dear people in our lives who brought the gospel to us. And even as we say that, Lord, we're mindful that we are in a city filled with people who've never heard it and who have not believed it, who desperately are waiting for somebody to come to them and deliver that message. And it's through the foolishness of the preached word that you, you, you redeem people. Motivate us, God, to do that this week. Help us not to be drawn to the miraculous Help us to be drawn to the gospel and to the pursuit of delivering it to anybody who will listen. That you might be glorified in all things. For your glory, Lord Jesus alone. Amen.